productivity guru uh, Stephen Covey uh, talks about in an article I read a number of years ago <clears throat> about the importance of paradigm shifts. He says a paradigm is nothing more than this uh, pattern. Uh, it's a model, a representation of something, um, a mental image of the way in which things are out there. Uh, and our humanity, he says, sort of operates on the basis of these paradigms and how they shape how we perceive and interact with the world. Well, he tells the story, um, he tells a story of a rather painful moment where he learned about the power of paradigm shifts while on his way into church one morning. He says, I was on a subway in a very large metropolitan city. It was Sunday morning, quiet, sedate, when a bunch of young kids came running into the subway car and their father followed. He sat near me and the kids went crazy on the subway, running up and down, turning people's papers aside, just raucous and rude. I sat there thinking to myself, I can't believe that their father just sits there and does nothing. My attitude was one of trying to control, but soon my attitude turned to behavior. So I leaned over and I said, Sir, do you think you could control your children just a little? They're, very, they're upsetting to people. Oh, yeah. He lifted his head as if to come to an awareness of what was happening. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I should. I, we just left the hospital where their mother just passed away. And an hour ago, I, just, I don't think I know how to take it. And frankly, I don't think they do either. Ouch. What he goes on to say is, that represented for me the entirely the same actions that someone was engaging themselves in completely turned for me. And he became wildly apologetic. It was actually um, Albert Einstein who once said that the most significant problems that we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created those problems. Jesus understands, I would submit to you, the problem of the human condition is such that sin has made it to where in order for it to be remedied, there needs to be a paradigm shift. A shift of everything, a fundamentally different way of looking at what you thought of yourself prior to meeting Him. A different way of looking. Our story this morning has Jesus in a confrontation with the religious rulers of his community. The people who had it all together. But they show themselves to be living by a certain grid. Which is contrasted by the way in which the centurion is living. And the two value systems I'd submit to you this morning could not be more contrasted. They couldn't be more polar opposite. They're working off of two entirely different paradigms to understand the world around them. We've been looking this year at the question of why these earliest believers would have found Jesus to be as compelling as he was that they would leave everything and follow him. So this morning I want to simply ask is this question. What grid do you boot off of? What paradigm do you use to understand your world, especially how you understand yourself? Because Jesus is giving his people a radically new and transformational way of looking at the world around them, and in the end ends up describing what I think was one of the more complicated topics in all the Bible, and that is the topic of faith. So I'm going to look at it this morning through three lenses. First of all, I want to consider the ruler's mentality. Second of all, we want to look at the centurion's posture. 
and then finally, the Christian's life. The ruler's mentality, the centurion's posture, and the Christian's life. First of all, look at the mentality of these religious people's rule. The story is actually fairly straightforward. You have a Roman soldier who is over approximately 100 men, hence the name centurion, and he has a sick servant who he loves very much. But this guy is not your average centurion. Rather than participating with the sort of systemic oppression that the Roman government was uh, submitting uh, the Jewish people to, this guy was actually fairly nice. He was a kind soul. Even, as it were, he was able to make a large donation to the synagogue building program, the original rooted campaign. But for whatever reason, the centurion decides that he's going to call upon some of his friends that he's made in the Jewish community to go and make this appeal to Jesus. Perhaps he thinks sending Jewish people to a Jewish rabbi will get what he wants. But the contrast here is to note the way in which the two groups talk about the centurion. Because when the Jews come up to him, they say, Jesus, you really ought to do this. Why? Because he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation. But when the centurion speaks on his behalf, do you see what he says? Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I am not worthy even to have you come under my roof. The the religious leaders appeal to his worthiness, but the centurion appeals to his unworthiness. You see the difference? Uh, The words we actually have translated worthy in those two places are actually different words. Uh, when, when When the religious leaders use the word worthy, they mean one who has merited Uh, The centurion, when he uses the word unworthy, means not sufficient or not good. And right there, you see the massive contrast between the way in which these two folks deal with the world around them. And frankly, I think what you get is a tip of the hand that these religious rulers were living in a world that was defined by merit. Merit. Life for them is a series of inputs and outputs. If you put in enough, If you live the right kind of life, if you do the right things, if you give to the building campaign, then favor comes in your way. Uh, They've adopted, as I heard one preacher say one time, the sound of music worldview. Do you remember when um, uh, Captain Von Trapp and Maria finally confessed their love to one another? Uh, And they say this, perhaps I had a wicked childhood. Perhaps I had a miserable youth. But somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are, standing here, loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You're welcome for having that song in your head the rest of the sermon. I actually had a homiletics professor who said, if you ever want to wake your congregation up, just sing something to them. You're welcome that I chose not to do that with that song. But I want to, this is my simple premise on this first point. If you live by pure merit, you have adopted a horrible existence. That's my premise. Now, mind you, I don't mean merit-based systems in the workplace. Frankly, uh, incentive-based business practices, I'm kind of in favor of. But when that idea of living on the basis of the points and the chips you've gathered, begins to become a working principle for all of your life, it's going to erode your relationships and eventually end you lonely. Why? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. 
the merit-driven life, it hangs your life in the balance. At any given moment, you hope that your good deeds are sort of measured out against your bad. People say this, I hope that when I get to heaven, you know, when my time comes, I hope my good outweighs the bad. My family's been watching uh, The Good Place, our new fun uh, uh, favorite sitcom on television. And the very opening scene has the characters coming into The Good Place. And there they are assured that their entire life, a very sophisticated algorithm has been at work. And for every good thing you do, you got points. For every negative thing you did, they were subtracted away. And in the end, in The Good Place, only the tip-top people actually make it in. Right? Now, why is this a bad idea? I think for at least three reasons. Number one, the merit-driven life ignores the human capacity for self-deception. You ever notice how oftentimes your opinion of yourself is fairly gratuitous? How hard it is not to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt when we're talking about our inner worlds. Um, (laughs) My favorite illustration of this came from a preacher years ago who was talking about what happened to the SATs back in the... uh, in the late 90s, apparently the people in the college entry exam program decided they would put some personal questions at the end of the SATs. Well, one of the questions on one of the years they did this uh, went this way. How many of you are below average at getting along with other people? That was a question. Almost 830,000 people took the SAT that year. How many people do you think said, yes, I am below average at getting along with other people. What percentage would you say? Zero. Goose egg. Not one person said they were below average. As a matter of fact, 60% of the respondents rated themselves in the top 25% of humanity of good people. It it gets better. 25% of them acknowledged themselves to be in the top 1% of all the people in the world. I don't know how you define a self-serving bias, but there you go. What's the deal? The problem is we can't see ourselves from the outside, right? Who is to say in the end who is good and who is bad? That's a great question. What you end up realizing is in the end, all you have is raw, pure self-interest that lets us know whether we commend ourselves to someone or not. So we have a problem of self-deception. Secondly, though, it really only ends in condescension and despair. You see, if you live life by chips... It means that you can never do anything but look down on other people who haven't discovered what you've discovered. And isn't that just a short step to sort of despising them and having despised them to sort of reject them socially? And once we've rejected someone socially, how far are we away from oppressing them and becoming the very people that destroy society otherwise? And granted, I realize that if you're a Christian right now, you're saying, whew, He's letting the pagans have it this morning. You're not paying attention because this is the Christian thing. Remember, it's the religious rulers that, that, that sort of presented this worldview. And frankly, I, I, have been, I have been exposed to all kinds of Christian discipleship programs. You know, those programs that people write that are encouraging to grow as a Christian that so often are framed in such a way as being like, well, if only you had discovered what I discovered. If only you could uh, sort of do what I did. If only you'd worked a little harder. Maybe I can help you and you could come up here to me. Look, if, if if our Christian discipleship is defined by condescension, 
then we've lost something. We've, got, we've lost something in the way our life ends. Finally, the, the merit-based life ultimately ends in despair. It, it leads us to nothing more than carried out despair. C.S. Lewis, in his um, uh, wonderful little book, The Great Divorce, which you've heard me talk about before, is about a bus trip that the people from hell take to visit heaven. And while they're there, the people in heaven try to talk them out of going back. But they won't do it because they want to stay where they are. And listen to this conversation between one of the angels, or what they call the solid ones, Lewis calls, and this individual from hell. He says, look at me now. I've gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I've done my best all my life, see? I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort of one I was, and I don't care who knows it. The angel says, it would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you could put me down because you're dressed up like that, and I'm only a poor man, but I got my rights the same as you, see? Oh, no. It's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I shouldn't be here. You'll never get yours either, but you'll get something far better. Never fear. That's what I say. I haven't got my rights. I've always done my best and never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is what I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be. Only be happy and just come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Oh, then do. At once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking. But nothing can be bought. See what Lewis is saying? He says, if you take your self-entitlement and stretch it out over eternity, it becomes hellish. All the while, simply asking for you to have the most chips. Mark Twain said, if heaven goes by favor then your dog is going to get in before you do. (laughs) Firstly, we see then the religious ruler's sort of uh, way of thinking. Secondly, though, notice the centurion's posture. The centurion is a posture where he's only able to receive something. And what it starts with is a profound sense of his unworthiness. And in the end, he's the one who gets the commendation from Jesus, but not the ruler's. And it's fascinating to watch people's reaction to this because a lot of people when they sort of first put their big toe in Christianity, they think to themselves, you know what? There your Christians go. All you want to talk about is how bad and awful and depressed you are. Honestly, that's why I left Christianity in my youth. It's just morbid. Tim Keller found a quote from a British psychiatrist who said this, the spirit that so permeates Christianity is, in my opinion, masochism. The strongest expression of masochism is to be found in Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This blesses the poor, the meek, the persecuted, to do good to them that hate you and forgive them their trespasses. All this breeds masochism. Hmm. So is the centurion a masochist? Or has he tapped into something very profound in the way in which the world works? Because it's as if he's saying, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof because before you, we are all on level of ground. Don't hear me, Jesus, coming to appeal to you on the basis of anything I've done. 
not the least of which is a donation to a synagogue. Those things don't count at all. Now realize, even when Christians will say that, that still puts off those from the outside of the faith. Because it sounds a little bit like that, that sort of pious exaggeration that your Christians kind of peddle, where, they, where oh, they are just so much more afflicted than thou. But really, I think the centurious really believes what he's saying here for at least two reasons. Number one, he's decided to get authentic. The centurion knows that it's not enough to look at your external behavior. You have to go into the motives. And Christianity, I think, is unique among world religions in that it asks you to consider where your heart is in terms of your behavior. Kill the root and you'll kill the fruit. But just because you see some externally attractive fruit coming out of my life doesn't mean that I'm not faking it. It's as if the, religious, the, the, the centurion is saying, my donation to the building campaign didn't mean anything because it had bad motives all over it. That's not why I'm here. But he's being honest about where his heart is. He's looking for grace, not a, not a merit-based system. But secondly, it's probably because he's interacting with the real Jesus. My sense is if you feel like you're doing fairly well spiritually this morning, you've probably traded Jesus' actual standard for your life for something far less strident and certainly less holy. The centurion has his own analogy, right? He's like, look, I've got men under me, and they do what I tell them. There's a measure of authority that I've been given. But you, you're over the whole cosmos. Now that is authority. That's the kind of rule. In other words, as long as you're viewing people as being beneath you, then your ministry is only condescension to them. But if everyone is above you, then you might break into some real freedom. And in this case, actually learn real generosity. Look, I heard one preacher say, all you need in Christianity, all you need is nothing. If you try to bring something, you're going to get nothing. But if you bring nothing, then you get everything. That's the gospel. And the centurion got it. And so he's commended. And that brings me to my last point about the Christian's life. He gets commended for it. But you notice, he doesn't get commended for his you know, keen insight into human nature. He's not commended for his, his clear theological insight. What does Jesus reward him for? He says, this guy understands faith. Faith. He gets it. Now look. After 25 years of of being on college campuses talking to Christian young people about Christian stuff, I really don't think there was a more misunderstood concept than the idea of faith. Really, think about that for a second. Most of the time, whenever I would talk to students about about faith, they would view it, true to form, through the lens of merit. That is, faith was just this new hoop that we had to jump through in order to get the life that I wanted. And of course, if the TV celebrity evangelists have much to say about it, your faith will get you a much better life. Success and money and happiness, etc. But this is the puzzle. How would you define belief or faith to someone who had never heard of it without using a derivative of the word to describe it? People say, well, you know, it's, um, it's when you trust somebody. Well, yeah, but that, that's just kind of restating it. And they're like, well, faith is that, thing, that action that you take in order to respond to Jesus' invitation. Hmm. In that sense, faith is sort of the act of maybe, maybe raising your hand after an evangelistic service or, or walking an aisle, coming forward. Uh, when I was younger, I, I went to uh, a, an evangelistic youth rally where the speaker towards the end of the presentation reached into his pocket and said, hey, I have a $20 bill 
in my hand right now. I want to know who in the crowd believes me. At that moment, somebody raised their hand. And he said, well, come on forward and get your money. So the guy came forward, he opened his hand, sure as shooting, that was a $20 bill. The kid grabs it and goes back to his seats while the rest of us kick ourselves for not believing. And then this is the moral of the story. He said, now here's the deal. Jesus has a gift for you, but actually he's only brought you halfway. You've got to meet him halfway by coming and taking the gift, by going up and receiving it. Have you done that? So that never sat well with me. Why? Well, it seemed to me that the whole sort of momentum of the gospel's presentation was trying to get me to stress that there was nothing I could do to earn my salvation. And then all of a sudden I was being given something to do in response to it that sort of leaned on my efforts. And frankly, I think this is endlessly confusing to a lot of converts because it doesn't take long before you realize, was I trusting in Jesus or was I trusting in my ability to trust right? Am I believing in Him or am I believing in my believing? Am I having my faith in Him or is my faith in my faith? I was told over and over again in evangelistic crusades that if I couldn't say the date in which I became a Christian, then there must be something wrong. Where is my faith? Is it in Jesus or is it in my act of faith? Hmm. Look, I want to suggest to you this morning that as long as you're headed down that track, you're going to end up with a man-centered salvation, which in the end sort of goes away from how Jesus is defining because Jesus is saying if, if the centurion gets it and the religious rulers don't, it means that faith is not about your fullness, but it's about your emptiness. Faith has to be more about Jesus than it is about me. Therefore, what a soul needs in faith, what is leading them to faith, is that helplessness, that awareness of sin, that powerful sense of my unrighteousness. I had this driven home for me a number of years ago by a conversation I had with a student who had come to college with with what you would expect. They They were, let's say, engaging in behaviors that were contrary to what they grew up with, and then they probably made some promises they would never be a part of, whatever. And what he was wrestling with was his faith. Because he said, you know, I grew up believing all these things, Les. I've heard all the stuff that you talk about at RUF, yada, yada, yada. My problem is I just don't, I don't know how to believe it. I don't know how to make myself kind of really, really feel it on the inside. And really own it as my own. I just don't know how to believe. Why won't God give me that ability? Like, I really want him to. I want to believe. But it's like he won't give me what I want. Hmm. Well, actually, in the moment, I didn't have a very good answer. It took me a couple weeks after that because he stumped me, which is fairly easy to do. But I said to him as we went on the weeks ahead, I said, you know, I think there may have been something that you missed about faith. Because faith is not a hoop that you jump through. But it feels like your heart is trying to make it one right now. Um, In other words, we think that we come to the gospel with the best of intentions. Like, I could go this way or I could go that way. And Jesus is going, "Mm mm-mm. The fact that you're asking the question is all is because I am at work. This is my initiative that's being taken. Frankly, the way in which we even try to believe sometimes is nothing more than fashioning for ourselves a new salvation by works and not by grace because it preserves our autonomy. There's an old Scottish hymn writer named Horatius Bonner who wrote probably my favorite book on Christian salvation called God's Way of Peace. 
And in the midst of it, he deals with this, um, this problem that people will offer in saying, I just don't know how to believe. I'm struggling with knowing how to make myself really buy into this stuff and have faith. This is what he says. He says, if someone tells you that they can't believe on Christ because of the difficulty of finding faith, and what they really need is for a divine power to draw it forth, it's kind of what my friend was saying. This is really kind of God's fault, Les. You haven't given me enough information. I don't have enough evidence to really believe and dive into it. (laughs) But tell him that it's a resting on Christ. Listen to this. And that this pretense of not knowing how to believe is as unreasonable as that if a man wearied with a journey and who is not able to go one step farther should thus argue, I am so tired that I am not able to lie down and rest. What? When indeed he can neither stand nor go. The poor wearied sinner can never believe on Jesus Christ until he finds he can do nothing for himself. And in his first believing always applies himself to Christ for salvation as a man who is hopeless and helpless in himself. See what he's saying? Even our belief can be made into a work if it's based on something else than our own emptiness, on our unworthiness. Frankly, the life of faith for a Christian oftentimes is summed up by the the trust that God is going to make my life work out the way that I want it to work out so that I can have the life I want. Look, um, this will get you to ask your question about your prayers. What am I appealing to Jesus on the basis of? What is my posture before Him? Let me ask this question in closing. Are you under the impression this morning that in the end, God is going to weigh your good deeds over and against your evil deeds and measure you out on those terms? Do you really want to take that chance? Perhaps it may be that what you need this morning is a paradigm shift. A way of looking at the exact same thing that you've been doing up until this time through totally new eyes, that instead of sort of giving yourself the credit and putting the onus back on God, saying, no, 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 this is either going to be by His grace or it's not going to be salvation at all. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that even that realization requires You to lead us through it, and so we're going to ask for Your Spirit You said that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you grant the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, we are asking. Because really, who is it that can say whether we're bad or good? Only you who sees all and is in all can make that judgment. And so, Father, we stand before this story of the religious rulers and the centurion, of Jesus' admonition of faith. We stand naked and stripped of any effort that we might commend you to ourselves on the basis of ourselves. So would you begin to heal us? Would you begin to draw us to yourself in grace so that when it's all said and done, we might stand with the joy that only comes from those people who've done so. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.